All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you, Kaijin, for hosting me uh, as well as inviting me. So I'm going to cover, oh, there we go, cover uh, a wide range of issues, and I thought what better an idea for a talk than to put three completely unrelated subjects into one talk. And so I've, I think I'll hopefully get through that today. And I also, um, you know, been using Kaijin products since I was a grad student, extracting RNA and doing dissections. And so, uh, again, happy to be here uh, to talk about what we're doing with Kaijin. So let's start first uh, with really, you know, people think about exome sequencing or RNA sequencing, and normally they think about really what is the exome, which is people normally think of it being 2% of the genome. But, of course, we know there's many other areas of the genome that are active. If you look back at the ENCODE papers, the estimate is potentially maybe 80% of the genome had some potential uh, biochemical activity. Of course, this was debated. Uh, some people, like Dan Grauer, uh, thought that this actually necessitated the rewriting of textbooks, in this case, not only textbooks about science, but those dealing with mass marketing, marketing, mass media, and public relations. So if you haven't read this paper, it's a very good read to think about. Um, if you're really angry about a paper, I think this is the way to definitely let people know. Uh, but unquestionably, there are a lot of areas of the genome that are active. And so we've been looking at this question since 2008, of so thinking at one point that can RNA sequencing replace microarrays. And at the time, we originally submitted this paper to Genome Research calling it the death knell to microarrays. And the editors, not surprisingly, made us change the title to something more dry about technical reproducibility. But even early on, we knew that there was a lot of excitement with RNA sequencing. We could see more differential expression. Back in those days, it was called Selexa, of course. And uh, this work has been replicated by other groups. So you can see more differential expression when you start to sequence things and start to look at a broader dynamic range. And so this has led me to actually declare many times that RNA sequencing is the same thing as love, actually, which my wife doesn't like, uh, but I still think is a fantastic technology. Because when you sequence something, uh, to be fair, I do I love her as well, and my daughter, and everything as well. But in any case, the um, when you sequence things, you don't just get a sense of the quantification of whether something was on or up, up or down, but you also can look at genetic variation. You can look at allele-specific expression. You can look at different expression by gene, by isoform, by exon, and also essentially by transcript. You can look at non-coding RNAs and new genes. You can also try to look at gene fusions, and you can even look at changes in poly-A binding sites, microRNA binding sites, and even anything that's left over, you can start to look at what remains. And so... In the past few years, we've looked at many ways to sequence RNA and trying to quantify them. And there's actually a lot of work with the Genome and Bottle Consortium and the RNA Standards Consortium to get you know, built-in standards for when you do this kind of work. And we know that all technologies also have some strengths and some weaknesses, although here we just say strengths. But when you want to look at RNA sequencing, you have to take all these things into consideration. But you also have to think about what you want to look and where you want to look. So in particular, the current version of GenCode, now version 24, has almost 20,000 coding genes, but actually 25,000 non-coding genes and another about 14,000 pseudogenes. But a total of about 60,000 total genes, which gives this great repertoire of what we should be studying when we think about human biology and human gene expression. But when you want to dig deep, you have to look at, say, for example, link RNAs. They're expressed at much lower levels, and they evolve more quickly than other areas of the genome. And essentially, you know, genes like hot air and other link RNAs are extraordinarily powerful in some cases. And we heard a great talk yesterday about also secondary structure of some non-coding RNAs. But, you know, how do you, how do you dig deep and find some of these really low-expressed genes that might be important? And often the best way is actually to go in and capture them. Or if you have an unlimited budget, you can just keep sequencing, which is what I, I would like to do whenever possible. But if you don't, you can actually try and go in uh, deep and capture them, which is what I'll talk about today. The other thing, uh, sort of impetus behind doing targeted RNA sequencing is work that we've done in cancer, looking in leukemia. We had a paper a couple years ago that looked at uh, chemo-resistant uh, acute lymphocytic leukemia, ALL, and we could actually see here we had a pediatric set of patients, and we were looking RNA sequencing at diagnosis and relapse to see what emerged after chemotherapy. 
What we could see is after filtering pipelines for known variants and looking for essentially non-synonymous changes, we could find some relapse-specific mutations that we validated, validated here with Sanger sequencing. But what was more interesting about these relapse-specific mutations is that they're actually correlated uh, with an early relapse. So it's these specific uh, mutations in NT5C2 were essentially driving the patients to relapse faster, uh, essentially because of this, uh, the response to chemotherapy was key- driving chemo-resistant mutations. And actually, we saw that the mutations clustered in the gene somewhat randomly across the gene. But when you look at the protein structure, they all were near the binding pocket, essentially for this nucleotide processing enzyme uh, in T5C2. And then we actually did essentially experiments to see if we you know, uh, transiently lent or infect some of the cells, they resist apoptosis, essentially, uh, for purine nucleoside treatments, which are a mainstay of chemotherapy. And so basically, we can dig deep and actually find chemo-resistant mutations in the RNA sequencing data by using these methods. But the, the challenge with this paper, one of the last figures of the paper, was that we looked at, at some cases, we did really, really deep sequencing to them to about 17,000x, 25,000x. And we could see in, in many cases that either the mutation was not observable or was present at such low levels at diagnosis that you never could have predicted that it would arise at relapse. And so this is something that's kind of haunted me since this paper came out, is how do we dig deep into find these rare mutations? And so some way that we've been doing is to look at single-cell expression profiling, but the other way is to actually go in and capture and grab the RNA. So as, as most of you also know, when you have RNA, it's, it's wiggly. So you have this challenge of how do you go in and capture RNA and get rid of the wiggles. Uh, again, the best way is to make a panel and capture it. So thus began sort of the discussion with Kyogen about doing some targeted RNA panels in leukemia to say, well, can we go in and actually pull out these essentially relapse-specific mutations and differential expression and, and get really good quantification of low-abundance transcripts? So this idea came out, I think, in uh, like the end of October, mid-November, and some emails went back and forth. And so the timeline was, could we, by AGBT, and try and make a panel, uh, synthesize it, capture it, and actually get results? To which, of course, I'm always like, well, life moves pretty fast. If, if you don't stop and look around once well, so why not? Let's just pretend we're all Ferris Bueller and try and get this done quickly. So we actually looked at the cohort that we had, which is 140 patients that have uh, exome, RRBS, and RNA sequencing, bulk RNA sequencing and it found relapse-specific differential expressed genes that we already had candidates on uh, that also were inversely correlated with methylation change. And so we had uh, done a subset of genes that looked like they're in, the, in a good subset of patients, but we only had 10 nanograms of total RNA left because these are clinical samples, so we didn't have that much. So I you know, emailed them and said, well, can we do it with 10 nanograms? And they said, well, then we can do that. So actually we got uh, the barcode, uh, sent the genes in, did the design, and talked about essentially what we would do with the panel. So... One thing I was happy to see about the panels, it already has unique molecular identifiers or the barcodes that are built in, so you can actually do more accurate counting than if you just do bulk RNA sequencing. So you can actually tell which molecule came uh, from which, you know, how many molecules carried that tag when you go in and do the sequencing. You can see here, here essentially is the barcode. And the prep actually was done um, by Jorge, who works in the lab, and he actually did it pretty quickly. It's only about a six-hour library prep. He did it in one day. Uh, it worked the first time, which is glad to see because uh, we didn't have that much time to put this whole thing together. Um, and then we also wanted to get a sense of what we could expect to see. So the data, this is data from Kyogen comparing it with the ERCCs, looking at the observed versus expected ratios, um, giving us an R-squared of near about 0.99 for reproducibility and about a 0.90 for so the accuracy versus qPCR. And you can see here some of the performance. And also we played along a little bit with the online uh, custom builders. You can actually upload your gene list here and start to make your panel. So... Once we got the data back, we ran it. Uh, it's basically on the next seek on a 1 by 150 run. You can see here uh, it was pretty even coverage across the different barcodes. We're getting, you know, here's the different barcodes. Uh, we can see we're getting pretty good coverage. So the big question is, what did we see from the patient samples? So here you can zoom, if you zoom in here, you can actually see uh, this is the two leukemia patients at the bottom. And you can see 
you know, they separate. They're very different from normal bone marrow here on top. You can see a diagnosis and relapse. In this case, there was uh, some genes that shifted. Another patient, uh, similar thing here. We see normal bone marrow top, and then these patients, you can see switching between diagnosis and relapse between these different genes that have gone up and down in their expression level. We can see relative to normal bone marrow, they're very different. So this is what we were expecting to see, but the question I think was, well, how does it compare? If I want to do bulk RNA sequencing versus tar targeted RNA sequencing, this was the first plot I wanted to see. So we took all the genes on the panel, uh, made plots to see how they appear, and you can see here that, in general, the R squared actually was about 0.92 for all genes. Um, if you include some of the histone genes, you can see there were some outliers. In particular, uh, these are some housekeeping genes that were used for, uh, for controls, but then some were a little bit odd. If you look here, these were actually the histone genes. Everything else in general was about 0.92, but there's a few genes that shifted the correlation a little bit lower, down to about 0.86. And these were actually uh, histone genes, which we've seen before. If you do polyadenylation or ribodepletion preps, you will see different, different variability of these histone genes, and it's because some of them are bimodally polyadenylated, so sometimes they are and sometimes not, and we can actually see that. So these are the only real outliers we found from the data were these histone genes, uh, which have a bimodal uh, polyadenylation signal in a lot of them. So this was um, not too shocking, but it was uh, my first thought was, well, what are those? And so overall, uh, sort of the conclusion from the data was that we could actually get very good concordance to what we saw for bulk RNA sequencing. We validated, so we already have a validation set for this paper of all the, um, the differentially expressed genes. And also what's really cool about it is very quickly, uh, you can get, you know, 90, we got 104 genes across 96 samples completed uh, within about, really, by the time we got the panel, it was done within about a couple weeks. And uh, the actual cost, of, including the run of the NexSeq, was about uh, just under 50 cents uh, per target. So it was really uh, cheaper than we'd be doing for, say, qPCR in a lot of cases. So we're very happy with these data, especially with this plot, which is the one I really want to see. Just watch out for histone genes is the only real lesson, I'd say. But otherwise, that was very good data, and we're glad to see it. So switching gears, uh, this is you know, looking at what's in cells and the expression, but of course um, there's other uh, genomes that we could consider. There are the others. And so there was uh, an old statistic that was under some criticism recently is that, you know, essentially people used to say you had 10 times as many bacteria to human cells, but this was cr criticized recently to say, well, maybe it's near 1 to 1 or maybe 1.3 to 1, and if you go to the bathroom or take a shower, you might shift that ratio below 50%. And so this created sort of, I think, a fake controversy in the field. It's like, what if we're no longer a majority of uh, bacterial cells? I think it doesn't matter uh, if, as long as they're still active and they're helping you process food. Uh, I think it's fine. But it, So maybe it's 1.3x, but you're still probably a minority party uh, in the democracy of the, uh, the cellular democracy of your body. And Jessica Lee Green has done this great video on what if you could see the world from the eyes of the microbiome? What would, what would the world actually look like? And, you know, every time, you know, all of us in this room, that you've all been eating food, you've been leaving DNA on the chair behind you, everything that you touch effectively, uh, you know, leaves this little trace behind. And so I think Jack Gilbert yesterday alluded to the fact that, you know, you all leave little traces of DNA and you could forensically track where you've been and what you've been eating and what you've been doing. You can see this is a great example of essentially you think of your skin microbiome having its own, you know, contained microbiome. And as you move around, as you breathe out, you can see you've put all these sort of uh, small microbes into the air. Uh, if you're a germaphobe, I'm sorry for this video, by the way. But you can see, but it, it, this is the reality. So you should uh, run towards that and not away from it. So you can see, you know, you're covered in it. Every time you say go to your, you know, maybe you've got a, a mug where you keep your pencils. You put the pencil in, you'll get a little, a little kind of puff of the microbes as you put your pen back. And so this is happening continuously around you all the time. And so, you know, videos like this and stories that have come up made you know, people excited about microbiome research, but there was uh, some curiosity that erupted in me, essentially just when I, I ride the subway all the time. And uh, when my daughter got old enough to ride the subway, I was wondering, well, what's, what's really there? And I've been thinking about this, actually, ever since I first dropped her off at, at daycare. Any of you who are parents know the experience of when you drop the kids off and all the kids are putting all the toys in their mouth and they're all sharing them. And 
they're all like basically, you know, making out through the toy proxy with each other, and it's horrifying in a sense. So I thought, um, well, I know her microbiome's changing, and I wanted to basically be the guy who would go, you know, swab her mouth when I drop her off, and then come back from lab at the end of the day, and then swab her again. But then I didn't, I'd be like the really creepy dad, so I didn't want to be creepy dad at the daycare. But I was still very curious. This it sat in my mind for a couple of years, and then uh, essentially, we had a big uh, sort of gang of summer students from Cornell, from Ithaca, for the summer that came to the city. And we thought, well, you know, uh, they said, well, you know, Dr. Mason, I want to look at, you know, Mendelian disorders and RNA sequencing and genome sequencing. And I said, well, you know, there's always going to be cancers and diseases, but you know, it's never been done. What, how do you feel about wandering New York City for an entire summer and collecting samples? And they're like, yeah, that sounds great. So I said, okay, great. I have a miniature army of swabbers. And so we basically sent them out in summer of 2013. Uh, and one of them built an app uh, working with GIS Cloud, actually, so you can log the data, and wanted to build our first sort of city-scale uh, metagenome profile, or as the New Yorker called it, a metropolome. And so we published this uh, earlier last year, and basically it was the first snapshot of a complete uh, sort of cities, you know, New York City's uh, metagenome profile. So the figures from the paper include uh, you know, really trying to understand when we collected the samples, and you can go into the map and actually browse each of the, t the data points and look at the picture. We extracted about almost 1,500 samples. Uh, this is actually uh, work done with Sean Levy, who's here as well, and sequenced them all uh, both at Cornell and at Hudson Alpha. And we did some of them in TrueSeq and some also on Kyogen libraries. Uh, quality trimmed and then did Megablast and, Met and Metaflan. And the most amazing thing, I thought, uh, one of my favorite things from the paper, is that when you look at the world around you, literally about half the DNA you can see is unknown. It's here in blue. So most of the world around you is uh, fragments of DNA that we've yet to characterize. They don't map to any known genome with actually fairly lenient blast parameters. This is a minimum 75% identity across a minimum 75% length of the paradigm 125 reads. So that's actually you know, lenient, I'd say, for blast. And it's still uh, half of them didn't match anything in Gen, uh, GenBank. And so uh, the majority of them were bacteria, though, and so there's some questions of how much the mobile kit enriches for bacteria versus other organisms, which I'll get to at the end. But we could see that we built uh, 656 supplemental HTML5 files that show the density of each species that was detected by both Metaflan and BLAST, and uh, essentially using most of it came from the mobile kit. So uh, what was great is actually the Wall Street Journal we worked with on this paper, they also made their own maps where you can zoom in and out and see where are the kimchi bacteria or mozzarella cheese different kinds of bacteria in the city. Things like also Pseudomonas putida can help you absorb chemicals essentially from, from the environment. Maybe it's doing you a favor. And we found that you know, there's a, a wide diversity of organisms across the city, uh, but that in general, uh, they also uh, were enriched for skin-related bacteria. So we did a log ratio enrichment of known human microbiome project species versus what we observed, and did this plot here of a log two plot, you can see here. And you can see they look like, you know, we did see uh, bacteria where their primary association, according to Human Microbiome Project, is both GI tract, your general tract, airways, uh, but mainly it was Staph epidermis and some Actinobacter and some things that you would expect to find actually just on normal skin. And this result, I know, has been replicated by Curtis Huttenhauer, who just finished the Boston subway uh, paper. So those things look like skin, and it's also what Patrick Lee saw in Hong Kong. So this is not too surprising because you're leaving skin-related bacteria everywhere you go. Uh, so we basically thought that there was about at least 600 species that we could say had pretty high confidence that ride the subway with you. Most of them are harmless, and, and pathogenicity markers were absent, and I'll get back to that thought later. But again, most of them were very harmless, unless you're, say, uh, Aricacus viridans is something that's fatal if you're a lobster. But if you're a lobster riding the subway, you may have other features that would warrant study, I think. But in most cases, if you're a human, you should be just fine. 
But one of my favorite things of the study was not just the sort of broad scope of seeing what's there, but also what happened over time. And so one data set, we had a student who went to Penn Station and every hour on the hour swabbed a kiosk where people buy their tickets and said, what happens as a, as a dynamic trend? And you can see here, Pseudomonas in general as a genus would be present the entire time in purple and some other uh, species that would burst throughout the day. And you can also see here that the student did not arrive at 8 o'clock in the morning. He was supposed to get there at 8. It was 8.15. So it was close. But, you know, you have to report the data as it is. Uh, so, uh, but in general, you can see across the day, it was very, very dynamic. Uh, and we looked at other areas of the city uh, that were more stable, though. So one example was the Gowanus Canal, where you can see here uh, is this canal in Brooklyn where it actually used to be a dumping ground for tanneries and industrial plants in the late 1800s. So it now looks like this, basically. Uh, and generally, you wouldn't want to go swimming in there. But there was a guy last year who did try swimming in there, and he said it concluded it's not safe to swim in there because um, sewage gets dumped into there as well as still toxic waste. And so he wore a hazmat suit but could not finish the swim because it was so toxic and disgusting. He said it smelled a lot like, well, sewage, because that's what's in there, and uh, I wondered why. But what's great about these kind of data sets is we made a map, a sort of a multi-kingdom map where you can zoom in and out of the city and see what's there. Uh, this is made by Jim Maiden, who's a postdoc in the lab. And we can see that there's actually a lot of methanogens that are present in the Gowanus Canal, so that explained why these archaea were present and probably driving some of the wonderful smell that that man experienced uh, firsthand. And also, again, all these maps you can uh, browse, they're all online. The other interesting thing about so molecular echoes was that we could see density varied depending on where you looked across the city. Uh, things like Staphylococcus, or we could see uh, some Enterococcus that were in different areas, uh, different species across the city. But some gena, genus, gena, genera, and actually were in very particular areas of the city, like Pseudoraltomonas was in you know, this big burst of it here. And we found that these are actually 10 species of bacteria that were only present in this one station, nowhere else in the city. And we actually realized that this was the station that we got uh, help with the MTA to go in and swab the, the station after it had been flooded by Hurricane Sandy. So this was, the entire station was submerged underwater. And we actually had swabbed, in that case, then the, the walls of the subway station to see what was there. And we found uh, things general like Shoanella frigida marina, which is normally found, was originally found in, as an Antarctic marine species. And here we could actually see it also as interesting because it makes a kind of acid called EPA, which normally you get in your diet when you eat fish, actually. And so uh, this, you know, in, what's interesting about this uh, acid is also if you have low levels of EPA in your diet, there's a link to maybe higher risk for suicide. So in some cases, you could argue that really the bacteria are very good for you. So even if you were to accidentally you know, like lick a subway pole or something. Uh, there are instances where it would be good. You know, Pseudomonas petita, there's the Shoanella genera, and so it wouldn't be that bad. And so I was once asked, you know, would, would you be okay? And I said, listen, you probably would be okay, probably okay. And, of course, the next morning what appeared online was that it's probably fine to just lick poles. Um, but now I have to stand by this statement. Uh, also, this has really been a rallying cry, I feel, for new parents. Uh, they, I've gotten some emails friends, colleagues, anonymous emails of people saying, I feel better when my child is licking random surfaces. Because um, it's kind of true, but we now know it's especially true. There's actually a, uh, there's a great talk this morning, and also just last year, a great randomized clinical trial on peanut allergies. And it turns out the worst thing to do if you start to get an allergy is to take all of the antigens away from someone. This is one of the best five-year study of looking at uh, peanut allergies. And so you actually you know, need low-level exposure to antigens to give your immune system target practice effectively. Uh, and that's what's been shown as, uh, by other experts in sort of looking at the hygiene hypothesis. And so uh, this just came out this morning, actually, as well, is that it's generally, you know, okay. But So you, wouldn't, you shouldn't feel like that if you have to go on the subway. You should generally think about it as okay. And so this is, again, the hygiene hypothesis. Uh, which many people talked about, and Rob Knight has done great work in this space and thinking about, you know, it, you know, you need a, not, not only the hygiene hypothesis for when you live as a child, but also even when you're born, if you're born by C-section instead of vaginal birth, you're at 
technically a higher risk for asthma, obesity, and type 1 diabetes. And this has actually led to a clinical trial at NYU of actually transplanting the vaginal microbiome to the baby sort of at birth. And so, because we were trying to get essentially that vaginal microbiome force field, essentially when you're born, which is really what you want, which we, you know, all should have if ever you can. So the, the research in this area is extraordinarily new. So I think a lot of the claims are, you know, we'll see how they pan out over the next 5, 10 years. But it's really exciting that we can actually now measure all these changes, I'd say. So the other thing we wanted to look at in the subway is, is some human DNA. So as most of you know, work from like Carlos Bustamante and John Novembre and others, that you can actually you know, reconstruct the map of Europe just from genetic data alone. You just take SNP data, differences between humans, and you can just, you know, essentially, there's the map of Europe and there's the predicted principal component map of Europe. And you can even get to within a few hundred kilometers of where someone's likely born uh, and work by like Jana Brillick and, and Aaron Elnick have actually shown this as well. So you can, you can get pretty close to where someone's likely from just on their genetic data alone. You can also do other things, like based on these, you know, ancestry-informative markers, which tell you where you may have come, you could go, say, for example, grab a cigarette butt and then predict hair, eye, and skin color and actually then you know, kind of make faces. This is what Heather Dewey Hagberg did. She made these kind of creepy faces of who was the person smoking the cigarette butt based on these ancestry-informative markers. So inspired by some of this work, we want to take a map of, of New York City and say, well, that's actually, you know, the, the census data has been put into a large map across the whole country where you can zoom in and out of demographic information and see where is, say, China town or where are the different areas of the city where there's different densities of black, white, Asian, and Hispanic uh, people, which if you're a population geneticist, it's infuriating. Just call everyone like white and black and Hispanic, and I recognize that, but that's what the census records. But we wanted to just take this as a, as a clue and say, well, what about if we you know, fragmented the city, just did a, actually a machine learning Im image segmentation algorithm and broke up all the different areas of the city based on those colors and then started to zoom in and look for differences, sort of look for the echoes of human DNA. And we can see here just south of Prospect Park, for example, there's sort of this sort of burst of a, of a white area that's you know, sort of you know, next to maybe a sort of more black or Asian area. And actually what was predicted from this, this is from Ancestry Mapper, it's an R package, it's free to use, is was predicted to be more sort of Tuscan, British, and Finnish of the highest ranking predictions. And you can see, if you go to another area of the city, like Costco, this part uh, seems to be more of a Hispanic area. You can see right here, that's closer to Chinatown. And in, indeed, Colombian, Mexican, and Spanish predictions were the highest ranking predictions from Ancestry Mapper, and there's sort of a burst of Asian alleles, which represents, we think, a proximity to Chinatown. And if you look further uptown, you can actually, this is more near Harlem. You can see it's more black and Hispanic area. And that's actually what we also saw in the predicted ancestry is that, you know, in some cases we could break African-American or Yoruban alleles were present, you know, in this area. And so I would have been happy personally if this even worked just in one subway station because we got very low coverage across the genome and uh, rarely would they intersect with an ancestry informative marker. But you can see this from figure two in the paper from last year is that, you know, in general, uh, the correlation was very was very good. Actually, there's the root mean square error here, and then you can see in some cases there was a lot of noise where the four categories would not match each other. But we actually got a large number of areas where the, the prediction, the predicted ancestry of what was left behind, uh, was very close to the people that actually live in that neighborhood. So it was very interesting, sort of the first time you could predict where you were in a city based on sort of metagenomic data. This, of course raises some privacy concerns. So that means, you know, if you add in epigenetic data and other information, after all of you leave this room, we could sequence the chairs and figure out likely what you look like, maybe where you've been. Using DNA methylation, we could, and also uh, telomere length, we could predict kind of how old you are. We could remake kind of the map of this room. Uh, and also, you could also, if, you, if you're sequencing every sort of toilet at this hotel, you could also look at your gut print and see where you've been, and we could tell who you all are. So. Uh, this has uh, raised some concerns, of course, but if you are worried about this, I encourage you to go to bioanonymous.me where you can actually buy synthetic oligonucleotides and you can spray them behind you. So if you're worried that people are tracking you, you can actually cover your tracks this way. So Heather Dewey Hardberg does this work. Also, by the way, if you think, oh, what a cool idea for a company, I should patent this idea. It's too late. It's already been patented. It's a system for obfuscating identity. So don't, don't even think about it. 
But in any case, the, the main question I get from a lot of people is, okay, that's interesting, Chris, thanks, but, uh, you know, well, just tell me, should I ride the subway? And so I think based on everything we've seen, I've said this many times, is that the answer is, you know, an unequivocal yes, and just really you should just have, you know, ice cream if you can. And so the reasons for this are twofold. One is that it's majorly, the, the majority of the things that we found are really innocuous towards human health uh, and don't really carry disease. And also, uh, it does get cleaned is the second reason. So you can see here, uh, you can see that actually the, the hardworking members of the MTA actually do go through and scrub and clean the surfaces of the MTA. So they do the floors, they do the benches, they do the, essentially the signs, they do the walls. And so actually, if you think about what we just learned, though, they're going through the entire system and taking what was on those surfaces and really scrubbing them all away and wiping them away. And so what this actually represents, if you think about it, it's not just a cleaning, but really a, sort of like a forest fire of what was on those surfaces. And what happens in every morning, we go in and whatever you didn't shower off or you bring with you into the subway, you repopulate the surfaces sort of with this new microbiome and coat the surfaces again. And so this is true, you know, this continual diurnal cycle of microbiome exchange and, and transmission is true not only for New York City, but also for Washington, D.C. You can see, of course, there they do clean the subway, this guy with a mop, for example. Uh, my favorite thing about this video is I don't know if he actually works for the transit system. He looks to be just a guy who might want to use the mop on the subway. He's not no vest, no identifying marks. So that was uh, interesting. So this, this idea of a comparative profile inspired sort of the next phase of the project, uh, which, was, which we're now calling sort of MetaSub, which is now uh, originally started as, was going to be just 10 cities, but now it's expanded. So, we're, you know, because we're, we're, New York City is only number seven on the list of busiest subways. 1.7 billion people ride it every year, but there are many other busier cities. So we've launched a, what's now a global project to look at sort of the genomics, metagenomics and design of subways and urban biomes. And uh, you can go to metasub.org and, and look through the profiles. And we're now uh, of number of committed cities up to 45 cities. This is from a paper that's in review. And we actually have planned for the summer on June 21st, the summer solstice, we're going to join with the Global Ocean Sampling Day people, which is the uh, OSD people, where they sample 300 sites around the world on the summer solstice every year. And we're actually going to be pairing our collections across cities and matching it essentially to what they're doing with the Ocean Sampling Day. So the, go the goal is to start to begin this sort of comparative intercity profile. Uh, and one of the questions we had first is, well, okay, we need a standard protocol. How do we do this? So we've started doing some work with the Chi-Seq FX because we can get down to 10 and 25 nanograms. This is just examples from the lab where we've done anything from one, one up to 12 cycles of PCR. I think we went up to uh, also a, a couple ones went further and optimized between six and seven cycles of PCR. So it's been working well for library prep. We can even get lower, we know. This is a tagmentation-based um, library prep. And we can get down uh, here, you can see to one, uh, you can get to 100 nanograms or one microgram. We've gotten down even to 10 nanograms quite reliably. So we're happy with this as a way, you know, as a, to actually, you know, get thousands of samples from around the world and process them in a uniform fashion. Also, you can see on the right here, the reproducibility of fragment size is pretty good. And also, this is a bacterial mix that had high and low GC. And even here, the fragment size was pretty reproducible. So these are being sequenced as we speak. I'll have probably an update on this at the ABRF meeting about what we see for the species distribution. But we don't have the sequence data yet. It's coming as we speak. Uh, but so far, the qualities look really good from all the libraries that we've made. And so the plan is actually to uh, jump. Uh, we just got approval from the city of, of Rio to actually do the Olympium. So we're doing before, during, and after the Olympics. We've been talking about this before Zika broke out. And now there's a question of should we also try and capture RNA from surfaces around the city. We mainly just wanted to see what happens uh, to the city. You know, when you have a large-scale human migration event, what does that do to the, the city urban microbiome? And now it's also we're going to be trying to track uh, for likely for some Zika, if, if it lives on surfaces at all. It's really a, an urban microbiome question, not necessarily from people. So, And then the goal for this uh, project also is not just do it in Rio, but we've been in discussions with the Tokyo Olympic uh, Committee to replicate the study in 2020. 
2020. And, and uh, Tokyo is actually a very competitive city. They want to be the best city in the world. They're very upset that on the global cities power index, they're number four, and they want to beat you know New York and London uh, and Paris apparently. So they're um, and they also clean their subway a lot. We have to swab a lot longer in Tokyo. They clean it five to six times a day in some stations. So we may have to do uh, both, uh, both air and surface collection. But this is an on- ongoing question. Um, so that's one context we're looking to build a better understanding of urban microbiomes, but we're also looking in other areas. There's uh, one other place that we've been playing with some of the Kaijin kits is in extreme, extremophiles, sort of extreme microbiomes. So if you want to uh, join the Extreme Microbiome Project, you can check out our website where we're going to find really peculiar places around the world to see what's in them from a microbiome and a metagenome perspective. So not just actually looking at bacteria, but really shotgun sequencing and extracting all the um, RNA and DNA to look at them. And so one thing that's exciting is this is obviously a quest for new biology. This is from the Pink Lake Hillier in Australia. It actually is bright pink like a Dr. Seuss book. Uh, and we've actually been mining that data to look for what are called biosynthetic gene clusters. So it's not it's simultaneously a look for new biology and also for new drug discovery. So even from the subway data alone, working with Mohammed Dani at Princeton, he's been mining the de- subway data and found that actually some of these railings have sort of predicted new thiopeptides and new small molecules that are being made by bacteria that seem to survive well in on like stainless steel railings or that are found in the abandoned subway station. So what what's amazing about sort of shotgun sequencing and mining data is not only is it really interesting and fun and just it satisfies my curiosity for what happens when people lick inanimate objects, but also it is a way to just discover actually new small molecules that we can see here's one of the predicted ones really from the subway itself. So that's kind of the discovery aspect, which is very fun. We're also doing it for educational outreach for the program at Rockefeller, so teaching students how to do swabbing and extracting and library prep. But there's, of course, a more sort of, um, you know, more grave uh, and, and more pressing impact of metagenomics is thinking about, you know, in the clinical t- context, as was alluded to actually earlier today in some of the talks, is that we should, you know, have really precision metagenomics is something we should, you know, be thinking about for any infectious disease, for any patient that goes into any hospital, actually. And so... We can see in the subway that there is evidence of live and antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And this isn't too surprising, because bacteria have been doing this for uh, probably billions of years to resist each other. But one good thing about the shotgun data is you can actually predict what are the antibiotic resistance genes. And this gave us sort of a proof of principle that we could predict on two types of media, the likely, in this case, TET-K, the likely tetracycline resistance driver uh, that we could see showing up in terms of the coverage. We'd see before and after treatment uh, what is actually driving it. So we've been in a lot of discussions with Jack Gilbert at University of Chicago, and then we just got approval at Sloan Kettering to begin monitoring different hospital rooms in a longitudinal fashion to see what happens. Why, why do one out of 25 people get a hospital-acquired infection? Why do one out of nine of those people get one die from it. So thinking about ways to monitor the hospital and actually potentially even engineer it better to know what's happening there. From from published work, we do know that when you look, since this is a paper from uh, Jason Dury uh, uh, recently that looked at, you know, if you monitor a hospital for a year and you sequence things, what do you find? And it reminds me a lot of what the work we've seen in oncology is what you, what you normally had for a conventional classification, you can see here it actually starts to break down into genomic subclassifications quite quickly. And so this idea that you have just an infection or a staph infection or even a staph epidermis infection or even a MRSA infection is itself probably going to be broken down much more by substrain classification. And we're just starting to see the same thing here when we're starting to collect the samples in the hospital. And so I think, you know, when people think about we're going to, uh, you have a weird infection, this has happened to some members of even my family, and they'll say, well, listen, we're going to wait three weeks or four weeks for a fungal culture or a different culture. I would argue that today, given the technology that we have, I think it's actually unethical to wait three weeks. It, it reminds me of a quote from, you know, Arthur, Arthur Clark who said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I would actually argue that any sufficiently advanced ignorance is really indistinguishable from malice. And so if you're saying, well, we don't know what it is and we're going to wait weeks to culture it, but we could be sequencing it, I think this is actually 
actually not that much different to the patient because you're just essentially letting them languish while you could have done other methods. And so we're obviously a ways away from having it be perfect, though. I know sort of firsthand what happens when you think you see, for example, pathogens in the subway. So clearly, you know, a pathogen is different from an organism and a plasmid is different from a backbone genome. And so, you know, we've uh, written a lot about this and talked a lot about this, the difference between, you know, what is really, how do you know that something truly is infectious versus just a, a presence of a plasmid. So we did also release a tool. If you think you see anthrax in any sample, you can upload it. And on this tool, you can see what that likelihood of it actually is being anthrax. If you're curious, if that were to happen to you, please use this tool. So looking, a, looking ahead, I think what we've been doing a lot with Metasub 2.0 is also collaborating with the CLC Workbench and trying a variety of different tools. So the dream would be, at least what we have clinically we're doing at New York Presbyterian, is that you should be able to get any sample from any area of the body and extract it with a variety of methods and also sequence it in theory on any sequencer and, you know, essentially have an integrated analysis. And one of these tools may be the best. We're in the middle of looking at this. Uh, but from every sample, you should know what taxa are present, know what the human ancestry is to confirm that the sample came from the person you think it did, look at antibiotic resistance drivers, and even predict what the drugs and metabolism is of that sample. So this is kind of the, sh the slide of a, basically our dream. And uh, currently, we're comparing all the different metagenomic classifiers. And so, so far, we've done these and about actually five more that we're in the middle of comparing for metagenome classifiers. Serpy, we just heard about this morning, actually. And what's interesting is a little bit of preliminary data is, you know, we can see we've been taking known mixtures of samples that have five or 10 or 50 or 100 known bacterial species. And this is the percent agreement on the x-axis, uh, on the y-axis. And then, essentially, where is the peak of the number of this percent agreement based on where the, essentially, up across the different tools. And we see that where most tools converge and the number of species present is actually where the real answer usually is. And so it is one way where multiple computational methods, when they start to agree on how many species are present, is usually a good sign. So this is data that's not yet out, but we're in the middle of working on this question of how do you know how many species are present in a really complex sample. It seems when you do an ensemble approach, you can get very close to the answer. You can see this blue line, there's actually 50 species present in the sample, and that's where we peak, and there's 102 here, and it's also very close to the peak. And so that's on the computational side. We're also working a lot with Kaijin to think about um, the biochemical side. So when you think of metagenomics, it's not just microbiome, it's metagenome, it's all kingdoms. So you could say that all kingdoms deserve sort of love in study and clinical practice, but they do not all deserve the same consideration. They really deserve pulverization, I'd say, uh, for studying clinical practice. So one thing we've been adding to sort of the mobile kit is something from a ABRF Metagenomics Research Group. is essentially a polyzyme. It's a six-enzyme cocktail. Essentially, we've been doing with and without the enzyme but, uh, with the mobile kit. And so far, this is uh, some new data. We've seen that we can get a greater yield when you add, essentially, this polyzyme mixture before you do the mobile kit. So we're trying to extract as much as we possibly can using this six-enzyme cocktail. So it's going to break, break apart, basically, all the cell walls, including also some chitinase, lysozyme, lysostaphin, mutanolysin, and achromopeptidase. And so really breaking apart all types of cell walls so you can get a true metagenomic sample is one of the challenges in metagenomics. And we're also trying to address this and working with Kaijin on this. And so that's um, everything from metagenomics that we have update that's new and exciting. But uh, I want to switch gears now to Scott Kelly, Captain Scott Kelly, who's flying above us right now, and talk about some astronaut genomics for the closing part of the talk. Uh, also, some of you probably heard that B.O.B. thought the Earth was flat, the wrapper, uh, for a little while. And so if you're worried that someone's telling you the Earth is flat, you can just go onto his Twitter feed, and you can actually see that the Earth is very much round. And so I'm not sure how, in this day and age, uh, reasoning that was 500 years old got used by a wrapper to claim that the Earth was flat. But um, if, you're, if you want to see beautiful pictures and confirm that the Earth is round, you can do so very easily from Scott's Twitter feed. So 
What we've launched with this project with NASA starting about a year and a half ago was to do really longitudinal integrated systems biology. So this is essentially looking at uh, the first astronaut genomes. And what's, what's great is that they're actually twin astronauts. So uh, Mark and Scott Kelly are both astronauts. By the end of this mission, Scott Kelly will have been in space 10 times longer than his brother. Uh, it's actually, you know, you can you imagine it like the cocktail party and someone's like, oh, both my sons are astronauts. Be like, yeah, whatever. And like, no, really, both my sons are astronauts. Uh, that's Mark and Scott Kelly. That's who they are. So they're both uh, now 51, but they've both signed up essentially to join the, the, to be part of the twin study. And here's our, our, our patch. You can see here we actually have small little epigenetic marks here in the middle of the DNA. And so this is the official sort of twin study patch. So the goal is to actually have them launch and, and monitor them longitudinally uh, over the course of uh, two years, six months before, and then one year in space and six months when they get back. So the launch just happened uh, about last March. And so in about three weeks, uh, Scott will come back to Earth. In the interim, though, we've been getting some samples from space. So we've got some actually that have been splashed down, what's called an ambient blood draw. So the blood gets drawn, gets dropped in the soyas, and then comes back down, splashes in the ocean, and then gets brought back to Houston. Cells get sorted and then sent back to Cornell in New York City. And we've actually seen, this is an example of some cells that only 36 hours prior were up in orbit, and they actually look pretty good. They look not too much different from what you get on Earth. And what we're taking with these cells is actually extracting, uh, to get different multi-omic profiles, we're extracting basically CD4, CD8, and CD19 cells, and then taking the lymphocyte-depleted cells uh, also here at the end, and then seek profiling them. And so we've seen so far that even samples we get from space look pretty good. If we do facts for CD4 and CD8, CD19 markers, these are uh, more your T-cell markers, here's B-cells, and here's the lymphocyte-depleted cells. And you can see that the purity is ranging from 91 to 88%. Uh, these are serial uh, purified, though, so the purity gets a little bit lower when we get to CD19, but overall looks pretty good. So one thing I'm happy to say is what we've been using for all these samples is actually the, the Kyogen All Prep Kit for both DNA and RNA. So we get the samples, extract out both DNA and RNA. Uh, and what we've seen is really good yields. Again, these are samples from space, so I'm excited to say that they look really good. This is the good 2818S RNA peaks, and there's actually good high molecular weight DNA which is decent high molecular weight, but not as high as we'd like. I'll get back to that in a second. But, you know, overall, we know that the RNA quality looks good before library prep. What we're switching to now for some of the later ambient draws is actually the new Magatract DNA extraction kit, which part of the reason, because we started working a bit with, you know, we want whole genomes, not just um, short read genomes, but uh, ideally we'd like, you know, complete, beautiful, single molecules, uh, you know, from, from telomere to telomere, what we'd like, but we're not quite there yet. But what we started doing was working a bit with 10X and Kyogen to actually use the new chromium, uh, essentially, you know, genome sequencing. So here we've seen, actually from, this is actually from, uh, well, from um, the astronaut DNA, as you can see, We've seen uh, you know, the coverage is much better than what we're seeing from some of the early 10x chemistry. Instead of it kind of shifting to the left, we see they were getting, in this case, uh, between 38 and 45 sequencing depth, and it's more of a Gaussian distribution, so really even coverage. This is the molecule length that we're seeing, 20 to 100 kb molecules. It's, some of this is because these were with the all-prep, so we haven't yet done the magnetic bead version. This is from the all-prep DNA extraction, which is it's still a decent size to have a 20 to 100 kb molecule that you're getting reads from. We're seeing about 1.4 to 1.5 million gems being detected from these samples. If you want to compare this, so for example, to 12878, which is some of the more standard data, you can actually see if you do the, the, you know, I mean, sample prep is key. So if you have a better extraction method, you can see here the phasing blocks get much, much longer. So instead of having, you know, phase blocks that are in, you know, tens of kilobases or maybe megabases, you can get things that are, you know, uh, tens of megabases large if you have really long high molecular weight DNA. So that's what we're doing uh, next, actually, with these samples. 
So one thing we are looking for in these samples is a few things. Uh, so NASA wants to send, I'll talk more about uh, this data in detail to, tomorrow in the plenary session, but uh, NASA very explicitly wants to send people to Mars by the year 2035. We're working with them. This is sort of their first foray into genomic space. But they want to look for things like this. When, when, when astronauts go up and come back, they get both eye damage, there's vasculature damage, but do we also see things like this, for example, or homozygous deletion or different structural variations we'll be looking for when, the, when they come back from space, basically, from, from these samples as well as potentially others in the future. Uh, and also, we'll look for other interesting things in the data. So, for example, here you can actually see uh, retrotransposons. So here's the different exons that you can see have been spliced back into this gene, TDG. We also see this in 12878, so it's a fairly common retrotransposal, uh, uh, retrotransposition. And this might even be a problem with the reference genome, but we can actually, the fact that we can see these kinds of events now is actually very exciting. So we can see, you know, essentially minute events that may have occurred as a consequence of uh, essentially high doses of radiation in space. And so... The other thing we're doing with these data is not just looking at just these data, but also comparing it to, you know, looking at DNA and structural variation, but also comparing it to hydroxymethylation, DNA methylation. We're also doing RNA expression, looking at um, allele-specific expression, and also RNA methylation, doing LCMS, and also doing ChIP-seq and ATTACK-seq, and also doing antibody titers with Emmanuel Mignot, and then B-cell and T-cell counts. Susan Bailey's doing telomere length assays, and also we're looking at cytokines, targeting global metabolomics. Fred Turek is doing microbiome, and we're looking a little bit at the microbiome, and also cognition and vasculature is being done essentially every 40 days for these astronauts. So this really represents, to me, one of the very exciting study just because of the challenge of having all these data for the same person, which in theory in the clinical future maybe we would have all of these assays, some of these assays, but that I think is a challenge for all of us, I'd say. So uh, in closing, I want to just uh, thank obviously everyone in the lab. These people really are inspiring, and uh, the only reason I can present anything today is because they work so hard. I also want to thank the courage of the current six astronauts up in the space station. This is actually their poster of what they got to pick. They got to pick their lightsabers, and that's, yes, the Death Star in the background. And, of course, I want to thank, actually, Kaijin for having me here today. And there's been rumors about what do the blue dots mean in Kaijin. I think I figured it out, actually, this morning. It actually is uh, different types of uh, blue carousel drinks that you can make is what my bad pitch might be. So uh, I also want to thank a lot of collaborators and friends and also thank uh, funding from the NIH and NASA and many other foundations. And thank you for your time.